welcome to the Deep Pockets and Stilettos podcast. I'm your host, Lorianne, and my goal is to help women feel empowered and in control of their financial lives. On this podcast, we discuss concrete advice on how to move forward in your financial journey, whether you are already advanced or starting from scratch. And we also dive into mindset shifts around money that are critical for financial success. So if you want to take charge of your finances and feel inspired and empowered, go ahead and give it a listen. Hello, everyone. I hope you are doing well. Welcome back to the Deep Pockets and Stilettos podcast, or welcome if you are a new listener. Today, I have an episode for you about diversification and the importance of it in a sound investing approach. I wanted to cover this topic because it's easy to get lost in all of the advice or information out there on diversification. We hear about it to mitigate risk, but also that, for instance, if you invest in stocks, you should focus on investments you already know very well and reinvest in them before adding anything new to your portfolio. It's overall confusing when you start your investment journey. And also we all wish there was a magic number of index funds or stocks that we need to have to achieve the perfectly balanced portfolio that can both tap into growth, but also mitigate risks for us. In today's episode, we'll look into why diversification is very important in a sound investing approach and how you can achieve it in your portfolio with a variety of strategies that are easy enough for anyone to implement. So let's get right into it. The topic of diversification is particularly current because of the recent falling of a massive US bank that I'm sure everyone has heard of, Silicon Valley Bank. And this is a bit of a cautionary tale for putting your eggs in the same basket. So what can we learn from the falling of SVB? And how can this story help us become better investors? In the case of SVB, the concentration risk came from putting almost all of their eggs in the same two baskets. First, SVB had specialized in being a bank for startups, which means that there was always risk on that side of the business because startups are typically not stable businesses. Their need for cash may vary greatly from different months of the year, different years. For instance, if you're a startup and you just raised a huge amount of venture capital, then with this new round, you're full of cash, you're going to deposit millions of dollars into the bank. But then a year later, your product launch might have failed and you're on the verge of bankruptcy. And so you need to withdraw all that cash because you were unable to raise another round of investing. And so by definition, startups are riskier businesses to have as clients. That's the first thing that happened at SVB. They were concentrated in terms of what clients um, they were servicing. And then the second thing is that during the pandemic, they received a massive influx of deposits, which they used to make loans like most banks do, but also to invest in bonds and they started having a rather significant position in bonds. When the pandemic resumed, the Federal Reserve started raising interest rates, which progressively caused the price of the bonds to fall because the price of bonds is inversely correlated to the interest rates. 
And how that mechanism works is that when you buy a bond, you get a return on it, which is your interest rate for holding the bond. The Fed modifies the interest rate uh, periodically. I think it's four times a year. And what that does is that when it rises the interest rate, new bonds that come onto the market after that rise get you a better return, a better interest for holding the bond, therefore making older bonds less attractive than newer bonds because you're going to get a better return for holding the newer bonds. So now the only way for older bonds to find investors is to be traded at a discount and to offer a discount to investors in their price. Therefore, if the interest rate rises, the older bonds, the bonds that you're holding, need to be lower in price to be able to be sold on the market with the newer bonds that came out after the interest rate was raised. And the reverse is true too. If the Fed decreases the interest rate, the newer bonds coming onto the market are less attractive investments than older bonds because those give you a better interest for holding the bond. In and of itself, the price of bonds moving up and down is not really a problem unless you're actively trying to sell the bonds. And going back to SVB, that's what happened. Deposits were starting to leave the bank. And at the meantime, they were trying to sell their heavy bond position that no one wanted, basically, because the Fed had increased interest rates in the meantime. And in order to address these growing cash needs as deposits were progressively leaving the bank, SVB said that it would need to raise capital. And that freaked out the investors. And what that caused is that investors sold their stock massively because that was not a good sign. And so that everyone tried to get out of their positions of holding SVB stock. And what happened is that that caused a huge influx of a stock, a given security on the market, therefore decreasing the stock value. And when the stock price fell completely in the gutter, that alerted SVB's clients, which caused a bank run, which is basically everyone going to the bank to try to withdraw their money up until March 9th, when people tried to withdraw $42 billion in just one day. That was a Thursday. And the following day, the Friday of that week, SVB was seized by regulators. Obviously, a bank run is a significant event that can send even the most solid banks into panic. But I wanted to illustrate with this example that something that may seem like not a big deal at some point can quickly snowball into something you can't control, which leads me to my next point, the importance of diversification and how you can implement this in your own portfolio. So why is diversification important in your portfolio? Diversification is a hedge against risk. It's basically a risk management strategy where you mix a variety of investments in your portfolio in an attempt to limit your exposure to a single asset class or a single risk. The reasoning behind this risk management strategy is that portfolios that are constructed 
with diversification in mind tend to yield higher returns while minimizing the risk over the long run compared to holding uh, any individual security. Basically, if you are concentrated, this is a hit or miss strategy. Either you win really big or you fall really hard. And if you fall, the fall might be very, very hard to recover from in most cases. So how can you implement this in your own portfolio? Well, there's different ways you can include diversification in your investment strategy. You can use geography-based diversification and be exposed to uh, several international markets. For example, if you have only U.S. securities, you could add a small portion of emerging markets or the opposite is true as well. Just being exposed to several countries or several economies in general in the allocation that feels right for you. You can also have a variety of asset classes such as commodities, gold, real estate, bonds, stocks, treasury, inflation-protected securities, for instance. Another element you can use to include diversification in your portfolio is the size of companies you invest in, whether you invest directly in stocks or in index funds or ETFs, as it is advised for most people. You can invest in small cap companies, those who have a market capitalization of $250 million to $2 billion, mid cap companies with a market capitalization of $2 billion to $10 billion, and large cap companies, those with a market capitalization over $10 billion. These are the Apples and Microsofts of the world. You can also use the corporate life cycle of the companies you invest in and have a mix of growth companies and blue chip companies in your portfolio. An example of a growth stock, for instance, might be Tesla. And an example of a blue chip company might be Coca-Cola. Blue chip companies are, in comparison to growth, more established businesses with sound financials that have been around for years. And the idea behind that is that you don't know what the future holds. So maybe the growth stocks are fantastic or the growth companies or the growth ETFs. Again, not recommended for most people to invest in individual stocks. So let's say you, you buy a um, growth index fund. Maybe it's going to grow by 10% or 15% year on year. And that's amazing. Maybe actually all the companies in that index fund are overvalued, which is often the case with growth stocks because the market gets hyped up about them and the price of the index is actually going to fall. And if you combine that with blue chip that are established businesses, first of all, who give you dividend, there's still going to be growth, but the growth is going to be maybe lesser, but more sustainable. So this way, if you have a mix of both, you can tap into both the advantage of growth returns with a higher risk with the growth companies, but also more sustainable returns and more stable returns with less risk with the blue chip companies. And another thing you can do is to diversify based on industries and sectors and be exposed to a variety of industries within your portfolio and also invest in terms of time horizon or maturity of the holdings you have. That stands especially true for bonds. You can have a mix of long-term bonds and short-term bonds. 
So what do we make of all of this? Well, there are several strategies you can use to build your portfolio allocation. But I have to say that your choice is ultimately going to be personal and will depend on your investing objectives and your risk tolerance. Sadly, there is no one-size-fits-all portfolio out there that works for everyone, but we can look at common strategies that have been used for years and you can decide then later if these work for you, if you want to tweak certain things in those strategies. A classic strategy is the 60-40, 60% equity and 40% bonds. And you can easily achieve this with an index fund or several index funds or ETFs. And you can also play with different elements to your liking. For instance, it could be a 30% total US stock, a 30% total world stock index fund, 20% short-term bonds, 20% long-term bonds. So this is an example of a classic portfolio that's been used for years by a variety of investors to tap into returns of equity, but also mitigate risk with a 40% bond allocation. Another strategy that is very uh, well-known is to get your age in bonds. So for example, if you're 30 years old, you could get 30% bonds in your portfolio and 70% equity. This is particularly used in the FIRE community. And the reasoning behind this is that as you progress in life and you advance in age, you rebalance your portfolio as you're going to be more reliant on the money within your portfolio. So if you're, let's say, 65 and want to retire tomorrow, having 70% of equity might be risky because if there's a market hit, then your portfolio might decrease in value and actually you rely on the income to fund your retirement. So that's why as you progress and you approach retirement age, you might need to make a transition from equities to bonds to preserve the capital that you grew. There is also another strategy called a risk parity portfolio or the all-weather portfolio by Ray Dalio, the founder of Bridgewater Associates, one of the largest hedge funds in the world. The story behind the all-weather portfolio and the beginning of the risk parity movement in investing is that Ray Dalio explained in his book Principles that he had been burned by several of his investment strategies and was looking for something or portfolio allocation more specifically that would work in several economic environments, especially after certain market movements that followed what Ray Dalio calls economic surprises. He then outlined four main economics environments, rising prices or inflation, decreasing prices or deflation, rising growth or bull markets, declining growth, bear market. And Ray Dalio then chose asset classes that perform well in each of these scenarios and came to the conclusion that a balanced portfolio that would do well and hedge against risk would comprise each of these asset classes that does well in a given economic situation. And these asset classes are stocks, bonds, and commodities and gold. And based on that, the all-weather portfolio asset allocation is the following. 30% US stocks, 40% long-term treasury bonds, 15% intermediate-term treasury bonds, 
7.5% commodities and 7.5% gold. And as mentioned previously, you can definitely achieve all portfolios that I outlined before with index funds and ETFs, including the all-weather portfolio. And that's the beauty of index funds and ETFs is that you can almost achieve instant diversification and be exposed to a completely different asset class or a completely different sector without having to handpick every investment yourself. I will include in the show notes a great article from one of my favorite blogs of Dollars and Data by Nick Majuli, where he explains the all-weather portfolio in details and shows how you can achieve the all-weather with ETFs and provides a variety of ETFs you can choose to achieve this portfolio allocation if this is the right one for you. My personal allocation strategy has evolved over time. At first, I was heavily concentrated in stocks until... It hit me in the face and my portfolio took a hit. And that's where I was most surprised and where I learned the importance of diversification. And so obviously I have diversified ever since, but sometimes you also need to learn from your own mistakes. But this is a process. And all of that is to say that your portfolio allocation and your view on portfolio allocation might change over time the important thing to do is always to research your investment and make sure it's a sound strategy that works for you. To conclude this part of the episode, your portfolio allocation is something that is going to be very personal once again. And depending on you and your personal objectives and the risk tolerance you have. For instance, for those seeking high growth, the all-weather portfolio might not be a great choice because it does not perform as well as a 60-40% allocation in terms of returns. And these people might want a higher ratio of equities to maximize their returns. And on the other end, for someone who is more risk averse or can sleep at night because they're afraid to lose their money, maybe something with less risk, such as the all-weather portfolio or a bigger bond allocation would be more suitable. The bottom line is, it depends on you and what you can stomach and what you can handle. It's not worth losing your sleep or being extremely stressed out. So know yourself, cut out the noise, Cut out the Instagram so-called expert who tells you to buy this stock or this crypto shenanigans because it's going to make you the richest man or the richest woman in Babylon. Research what is right for you. And once you've found it, take action and invest at a low cost. And once that's done, focus on what you can do to make more money, to invest more money and further advance on your financial journey. And that is a perfect segue into the last part of this episode. We've discussed so far why diversification is important in our portfolios, but what about the diversification of the sources of income that feed our portfolios? I love this quote by Elon Musk that says, do not put your eggs in the same basket unless you can control precisely what happens to that basket, which is pretty much never the case. We never have full 100% control over a situation. Most of us rely on only one source of income, and oftentimes that is our job. Are our jobs 100% safe? The answer is no. So by definition, this is risky because that unique stream of income could almost disappear overnight. 
And I'm not going to lie, I don't like the whole get multiple streams of income conversation. First of all, because it's very often associated with shame. There is shaming that happens for people who don't have multiple streams of income. And that goes along with corporate bashing, uh, which is another separate topic in and of itself that we won't get into today. But I think this advice is not realistic for most people. And it's often given by people who are in industry where the norm is to have multiple streams of income. I'll take the example, for instance, of content creators. If you're a content creator, you can have sponsorships for Instagram posts, for instance, but also write ebooks or have a podcast and have sponsors on your podcast or have a YouTube channel where you get AdSense revenue because of ads embedded in the YouTube platforms that are on your videos. So there you go. In nature, you already have multiple streams of income. But for most people who have industry-specific jobs or function-specific jobs, it's going to take them way more work to create another stream of income and way more time because it's going to be like creating another business. And so I think it's easy for people to give advice when they're already operating in an industry that in nature offers multiple streams of income because it's just how the industry operates to a variety of people who operate in completely different industries. And the other reason why I take issue with that advice is that it um, creates shame for people and it makes them feel like they're doing something wrong if they don't have like seven streams of income or 10 streams of income, which again is not a reality for most people. And I think it sets unrealistic expectations and pressure and we're already expected to be a boss at our jobs, to have a social life, to take care of our families, and all the other expectations that fall, especially on women, the societal expectations that fall on women. And now we need to be a genius on top of that and create eight other streams of income. It's just too much. It's overwhelming and it's not realistic. And it makes us feel like we're failing all the time, which is unhealthy. And if you have the opportunity to create a side or so that works for you, I mean, that's great. But I just don't want anyone else who have already too much on their plate to feel like they need to do this. It's not realistic for most people. And I think if we were to turn the conversation to alternatives, it would be way more productive and way healthier because it would not put on shame on people who can't make it and make them feel guilty for not being able or not having the space in their lives or the conditions in their lives to make 17 streams of income happen. An alternative that I have found works for me is that you need to keep your resume current and keep interviewing even if you like your current job and project to stay at your, your current company for the foreseeable future. I don't advise you to do this every month, but once or twice a year to explore options that are available for you out there and stay up to date on the label market. Applying and getting two or three interviews a year might take you about 30 hours of work in total to find a job, then apply, and then prepare for the interview. So let's say that is about one day a year to make sure you are on your A-game 
to find a new job if travel comes around and this isn't a distant memory from five years ago. And the rationale behind this is that we never know what can happen. And let's say if you've been at your job for five years and the last time you interviewed was for that job, and then all of a sudden cuts happen and your company and your job is part of the cuts, you're then blindsided and you need to go back to a market you have no idea what is currently like and you need to get back into your game not only after you know your self-esteem taking a hit so it's going to take you way more time and way more mental bandwidth to get back into the uh, looking for a job game than if you had kept it current with those few interviews a year I hope that you liked this episode about the importance of diversification in your portfolio and that I was able to show you what it could look like with the various portfolio strategies that I outlined. But remember, the most important thing is that the strategy is tailored to you and your needs. Diversification is also a principle that can be used in life and notably in terms of streams of income. And it's often advised to have multiple streams of income to mitigate risk. And while this strategy is very sound in and of itself and makes sense, it's not applicable for most people. So if you're unable to create multiple streams of income, I don't want you to feel like you failed as there are other alternative things you can do in your life, in your career to mitigate risk without having multiple streams of income. Thank you so much for listening. If you like the show, don't forget to rate and leave a review. It's the best way to help the podcast grow and get discovered by other women like you that are looking to take their financial game to the next level. Also, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any new episode. I'll see you next time. And in the meantime, remember, take action to materialize the life you want. The information contained in this podcast is not intended as and shall not be understood or construed as financial, legal, and tax advice. I am not an attorney, accountant, or financial advisor, nor am I holding myself out to be. And the information contained here is not a substitute for financial advice from a professional who is aware of the facts and circumstances of your individual situation. 